The following podcast is from Arlington Countryside Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org. Have you ever heard the name John Tetzel? It rhymes with pretzel, John Tetzel. How many of you are familiar with that name? Not too many. He's a historical figure that you should be aware of. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther's, and um, Tetzel was a Dominican friar, and he held a couple of pretty important titles. He was a player in the church at that day. For a while, he held the title of Grand Inquisitor to Poland. Grand Inquisitor to Poland. You know what that meant as an inquisitor? What that meant was he was a heretic hunter that if people were reported to be teaching things or verbalizing things contrary to the teachings of the church, John was called in. And as Grand Inquisitor, he would put them on trial. And if they were found guilty of heresy, he had the power to punish them with death. And you may not be aware of this, but in the decades leading up to Martin Luther... And in the decades following him, many, many men and women paid for their beliefs with their very lives. And because they held publicly to sola scriptura, or sola fide, or sola Christus, they were sentenced to death. And men and women that day were sentenced to death by burning at the stake, by being tied to a stake and being strangled by being beheaded, and oftentimes they were bound hand and foot, placed in a gunny sack with heavy rocks in the sack. The sack would be tied at the top, and they'd be dropped into a river, and they would drown inside that sack. And so we look at these five solas, these things we're teaching, and we think, oh, that's interesting, or oh, I didn't know that, or oh, that's so important. But folks, for the people of this day, For them to hold to those beliefs, many of them paid for it with their very lives. And so Tetzel was a heretic hunter. But later on in his career, he became more of a salesman and he received the title of Grand Commissioner for Indulgences. Grand Commissioner for Indulgences. And he was actually in Germany uh, selling these indulgences. And it ground the gears of Martin Luther something fierce. And in fact, Martin Luther faced off with John Tetzel publicly many times, and he was a severe critic of Tetzel because of his selling these indulgences in Luther's home country of Germany. Now, you know what an indulgence was? The easiest way to explain an indulgence is, uh, remember playing Monopoly, the get-out-of-jail-free card? That's what he was selling. And see, what it meant was you could buy indulgences for yourself or for family and friends, and what, it, what they would do is they would get you out of hell, or they would get you out of purgatory, or at least get you out sooner. And so they were selling these indulgences, uh, you know, and that was the advertisement. Uh, uh, it was like a spiritual, heavenly, get-out-of-jail-free card. The truth is the money was going to pay off debt that the church had incurred in Rome, and to pay for various building projects in Rome. 
but this is the way it was marketed. And Tetzel was a very bombastic guy, and he was a very uh, sales-oriented kind of guy to the point where he had his own jingle for the selling of indulgences. I kid you not, here was Tetzel's jingle. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. That was the little commercial. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, in other words, pay him your gold, get your get-out-of-jail-free card. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Now, he was overstating things. That wasn't the official doctrine of the church, but it's how he was selling his indulgences. So you can imagine how Martin Luther wasn't having any of that. But it brings us to really important questions when you think about it, about how do you get to God? How do you get the hookups with God? How do you avoid eternal punishment? How do you gain forgiveness? Now, the reformers began to read the New Testament, and they were convinced that there was no middleman that you didn't need a pope, you didn't need a priest, you didn't need indulgences, you didn't need anything to get to God other than Jesus Christ. And so that's the reformational principle we're considering this morning is sola Christus. Sola Christus means Christ alone, and it's the conviction that Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Key verse for this is 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. It says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Pretty straightforward, right? You see, a mediator is brought into a situation when two parties have a conflict and it can't be settled. You bring in a mediator who smooths things over, who figures things out, and reconciles the two parties. Well, see, humanity had a big issue because we were, we were estranged from God. Our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion had, had separated us from God. And so God, in his love for us, sent his only son as a mediator to settle the dispute, to be the middleman, to be the mediator between the Father and his sinful creation. There's one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. As we pray, I'd like to pray for our women. We have about 40 women missing this morning. Uh, They're on a fall retreat in Williams Bay, Wisconsin. And so we want to pray their retreat finishes up well and uh, remember them. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the women from our church who were able to go on retreat. And uh, Lord, we pray it wraps up powerfully that, Father, they're encouraged, that they're rejuvenated spiritually, that it's just an excellent time for them, Father, and you help them to arrive home safely later this afternoon. Uh, God, we thank you for what took place there this weekend. And now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. God, help us to cling to Christ. Help us to believe that he is the only way, that our hope is in Christ alone. Uh, God, we uh, ask our hearts to be open and receptive to truth. We pray in your son's strong name. Amen. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We sing about Jesus Christ. And so I want to start when thinking about believing that Christ alone is all that we need. I want to think about the name we call him, Jesus Christ, and break that down for a quick minute. First of all, the name Jesus. The name Jesus isn't something that Mary and Joseph kind of concocted, dreamed up. So that sounds like a nice name for our little baby boy. 
The fact is, Luke records that the angel Gabriel specifically instructed Mary to name her boy Jesus. He said, you're going to have a son, name him Jesus. It was a very common name at the time. There was a lot of Jesuses running around. Uh, the name Jesus in the Hebrew is often uh, spoken of as being Yeshua or Joshua. Yeshua or Joshua. That's the Hebrew equivalent. In the Greek, it's the name Jesus. And whether in the Hebrew or the Greek, the name Jesus means God saves or God is salvation. And so kind of makes sense. Gabriel wanted the boy named that, uh, told that, that God the Father wanted the boy named that, and it's pretty obvious why, right? That's a fitting name, that Jesus means God saves. Now let's consider the second part, Christ, Jesus Christ. When we speak of Christ, understand that we're not talking about a name, but it was a title. It wasn't a name, but it was a title. Uh, this morning, uh, Matt Ross is on the keyboards, and this morning when I saw him in the green room before the first service, I greeted him by saying, hey, Doc. Well, his name's not Doc, his name is Matt. But you see, that's a title that he's earned. He's a doctor of psychology, and so I like calling him Doc. Okay, but it's not his name. We all understand that. The mayor of Arlington Heights lives in the neighborhood here of the church just down the block, and Every once in a while, I'll bump into uh, him uh, in different places. And when I have, I always greet him as, good afternoon, Mayor. Well, his name's not Mayor. His name is Tom, right? But I call him Mayor because it's a title. And so understand when we say Jesus Christ, it, Christ isn't a middle name. It's not a last name. It's a title. And understanding the meaning behind that title is pretty significant. Uh, Christ is what it is in the Greek. The Hebrews would use the term Messiah. And so Messiah, Christ, synonymous terms. One is Greek, one is Hebrew. But they both mean anointed one. When you speak of the, him being the Christ, you're calling him the anointed one. A person was anointed. It meant they were being set apart. It means that they were being set apart for a particular role. And you see, the rich meaning behind calling Jesus Christ is we're saying that he was the anointed one, and there were three types of people who were anointed in the Old Testament. You know who they were? Three types of people were anointed in the Old Testament. One, the prophet. The prophet was the person who was God's spokesperson. He would come and tell people what God wanted them to know. He'd make known the will of God. The second type of person that was anointed was the priest. The person serving in the temple, who acted as a mediator between sinful people and a holy God, and the priest offered sacrifices. The third type of person anointed in the Old Testament was the king. That is, a king took the throne, he would be anointed, and he was recognized as the leader and the commander. We well, see, it was the reformer John Calvin who took this teaching and made it prominent, they used a Latin term, uh, munus triplex. And munus triplex meant the threefold office of Christ. And what they brought out was that the teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus was the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He held triple offices. He was the ultimate of all three, a prophet, 
a priest and a king. And then later Reformed theologians, such as Francis Turretin, talked about the threefold misery of men. And the threefold misery of men was ignorance, guilt, and bondage to sin. And then they, they coupled the, the threefold uh, uh, um, misery of the human race to the threefold office of Christ. It's pretty cool. And it's like this. Ignorance was remedied by the prophetic voice of Christ. That Christ told men and women what God wanted from them. They were no longer ignorant to the ways of God. Secondly, guilt was removed by his priestly actions, that he was the ultimate mediator between God and men. And in fact, the sacrifice he offered was his own blood, his very life. And then finally, bondage to sin and the way it destroys human beings' lives and relationships, that we were liberated by the powerful king, that he rescued us from that bondage. That's pretty cool stuff, don't you think? And folks, the, the, the point being made is that Christ is sufficient. That Christ is all we need. He was prophet, he was priest, he was king, he was the ultimate of those things, and he is sufficient. All we need is found in Christ. Now, I want to take you to an Old Testament passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, and think about what's in a prophecy. When you think about Christ being all that we need, Christ alone. As I was preparing for this morning, I was trying to find just a couple of verses in Psalm 53, like a couple of highlight verses. But here's what I found. Throughout the week, as I was looking at this, I was like, ah, I can't leave any of them out. There's 12 verses. It's just a little bit lengthy, but here's what I want to do. I want to take the time to read the entire passage of Scripture because it's so remarkable. And I want to encourage you to kick back, relax, Watch the screen, read along on the screen, and take in what this is teaching. And folks, the mind-blowing thing about Isaiah 53 is this. Isaiah penned it 700 years before Christ. If you were to give someone Isaiah 53 now without it being labeled, and they were to read it, even if they just had a basic knowledge of Jesus, they'd recognize who it was talking about. And the assumption you would make is that was written after Jesus. I mean, they're kind of, it's a little biography of the life of Jesus. But when you read Psalm or Isaiah 53 and understand that it was written 700 years before Christ, folks, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation now. And that seems like a gazillion years ago, right? This was 700 years prior to Christ. So keep that in mind and see what a vivid picture it paints of Christ. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot, like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There is nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. 
And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's the Christ. That's the Messiah we worship. That's the person whose name we pray. We could take months, weeks and months to tear apart Isaiah 53, but let me just make three super basic observations. The first is this. He did not deserve punishment. He didn't do anything wrong. He was innocent. He wasn't paying for his own sins. Second observation is this, that he suffered in our place. Isaiah made that clear. That his death, the significance of it was, it was a sacrificial death. That it was a substitutionary death. He wasn't dying for anything he did. He was dying for the things that we have done. He wasn't dying for his own sin. He was dying for our sin. He suffered in our place, a substitutionary death. And the third observation is this, that through his suffering, we are made righteous. That you see, his death was effective. It accomplished a purpose. While we were lost and in rebellion and without forgiveness and heading towards damnation, Christ intervened and brought about the gift of righteousness for us. That was the great exchange that took place on the cross, that our sin was placed upon him and his perfection, his righteousness was placed upon us. Now, with Isaiah 53 in mind, I want to take you to a conversation that took place in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 records a conversation that took place between Philip, who was an evangelist, and this guy from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. He was a uh, uh, big shot in the Ethiopian government. And 
God sovereignly caused Philip and the eunuch's paths to cross. And as God would have it, the, the eunuch was in his chariot, was in his carriage reading scripture and was customary in the day he was reading the scripture out loud. And Philip happened upon him as he was reading the scripture out loud. Now the cool thing about this story is he was reading, the eunuch was reading the passage of scripture we just read. I love that. That the words that you and I just read were being read in this story 2,000 years ago. And look what happened in the conversation. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about who? Jesus. Folks, they recognized the fact that Isaiah was talking about Jesus Christ, that this man born in the city of Bethlehem, this Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And the truth is, all the scriptures point to Jesus. Uh, Jesus said in John 5 verse 39, he said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And so the Old Testament is a redemptive narrative that points to Jesus. It points ahead to a coming anointed one, a coming Messiah. And that Messiah turned out to be Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Now, I want to take you to John 14, 6. I want, I want you to see this claim that Jesus made. And I'll tell you why it's important. That as we think about Christ being the only way to heaven, why it's important to look at this verse. Because there are people who say, they assert, well, Jesus never taught that he was the only way to heaven. That he wouldn't be that narrow-minded. It's just his followers are that narrow-minded. You know, and that we just attach overzealous devotion to him and put words in his mouth that he never really said. And Jesus never meant for things to be that narrow-minded, that he could be the only way. And folks, most of the time that's not going to come from people of other world religions. You know where it's going to come from? It's going to come from liberal Christianity. It's going to come from church, churches, and clergymen who don't believe the Bible's the word of God, who don't believe Jesus was true deity. And they're Christian really in name only. And they're, they're the ones whose voices will stand up and say, no, you're being too narrow-minded. Jesus never said those kind of things. Of course, if you read the New Testament and the Gospels of Jesus, you'll probably have your confusion cleared up pretty easy, right? John 14, verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one can come to the Father except through me. I don't know what you think, but I don't think Jesus minced his words too much here. 
I think he was about as plain and as straightforward as he could be in saying this. But this isn't the only place he talked about these kind of things. I want to take you one other example in Matthew chapter 7. Look what Jesus said here. He said, you can enter God's kingdom only, only, very exclusive, only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow. Not just kind of narrow, but very narrow. And the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. And so Jesus sought to make clear in his own ministry that he was the way, the only way. And yeah, it's a narrow road. It's a narrow gate. But because it was true, he proclaimed it loudly. The society in which we live, the whole concept of sola Christus will rub them the wrong way. If you were to get on Facebook or some other social media and talk about this, or if you were to be in various public settings, whether it might be at work or someplace else, and you were to assert that Jesus is the only way, you're going to face a lot of resistance. And the truth is you may even encounter a fair amount of anger because in our increasingly pluralistic society where there's an absence of absolute truth and this belief that, hey, you're One way is as right as another way. All roads lead to heaven. It really doesn't matter. Just be sincere, blah, blah, blah. That for someone to come along and say, nope, 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 don't buy it. There's only one way. It's going to get you labeled. It's going to get you labeled narrow-minded, exclusivistic. Ultimately, it can get you labeled a religious bigot. Because how dare you be so arrogant is to infer everybody else is wrong and somehow you're better than everybody else and your way is right. So how do we live sola Christus in a world that rejects that very concept and label you a bigot? So let's take the remainder of our time. I want to share with you some thoughts about what is a bigot to do and bigots in quotation marks, all right? Because I don't believe you're a bigot. I don't believe I'm a bigot to hold to this truth, but you're going to get labeled that. So let's talk about what to do as a bigot in a pluralistic society. Four action steps, all right? The first is this. I would encourage you to be humble but firm. Without apology, without blinking an eye, I would encourage you to adhere to the teaching of Christ only to make no apologies for that belief. But with that said, be humble. Don't have an arrogant tone. Don't have a judgmental, harsh tone. Don't argue. Don't get mad. Those won't accomplish anything. And so in holding to this belief, I'd encourage you to be a humble person, but stick to your guns to remain firm in that belief. Second action step is this. Affirm, specifically affirm you are tolerant of others holding other views. In other words, when you find someone that disagrees with you on this point, you can out loud specifically say to them, hey, I'm tolerant of you having 
a belief other than mine. I'll defend your right to disagree with me. I'm not tolerant like I'm going to, you know, put you on trial for heresy or kick you out of the country or, or make you shut your mouth and you can't talk. I'm tolerant. You, it's okay for you to have another belief, but it's not going to change what I believe. And you see, that's where our tolerance draws a line. I'm not willing to say all roads lead to heaven. I'm not willing to say Christ is just one of many options. Because I believe it's absolute truth, at that point, I've got to say, we got to agree to disagree here. Now, you still have the right to believe what you believe, but I've got to draw a line there. But affirm to them, you respect their right to believe what they do. All right? Third action step is this. Cite your truth source and ask for theirs. In other words, tell them why you believe Jesus is the only way. Well, why do you believe Jesus is the only way? Because our holy book teaches it. It's not something we made up. We read the words of Scripture. We read Acts 4.12 and John 14.6 and Matthew 7 and 1 Timothy 2.5 and the whole teaching, and, and we say, you know what, we believe Jesus is the only way because we read our holy book, we read our Bible, and that's what it's teaching. That's what our truth source is. So it's not something I made up. It's I read this ancient book, and that's the conclusion I've come to. I think it teaches that pretty clear. So you do that. You cite your truth source, but then you know what you do? You turn it around and say, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you believe many roads lead to heaven? Why do you believe one way is good as another way? How do you think they're going to answer? 90, 95% of people at that point will be... They never thought about it. They don't have the faintest idea why they believe that. But you know what the truth is? The vast majority of people in our society, you know where their religious beliefs have come from? It's a mishmash. It's a mishmash of various assorted things over the course of their life. And so why do they believe what they believe? Well, it's a combination of uh, some stuff they heard their old crazy Uncle Joe spewing at a uh, family reunion when they were young. And, uh, and it's uh, something they vaguely remember in Sunday school when they were young. And oh yeah, that, there was that episode of Oprah back about 12 years ago that was pretty interesting. And I remember some stuff they said from there. And uh, oh, oh yeah, I read something on Facebook last week and, and uh, that kind of stuck with me. And, and so when they really think about, okay, why do you believe that? Where, where's that belief coming from? It's just an incoherent mishmash of a little here, a little here, a little there. But their truth source is incredibly weak and illogical. And they have no real reason to believe that. But you know what? At that point when you say, hey, what's your truth source? And they try giving you an answer. You don't have to say, oh, in your face, my truth source is better than yours. All you have to do is smile and nod your head and say, no, tell me about your true source. And at that point, the vast majority, not everybody, but the vast majority of people are going to be exposed and they're going to be kind of embarrassed. They're going to feel like they're on the spot. And you know what you've just done? You've planted a seed of doubt in their brain. Because when they're forced to answer the question, why do you believe that? They're like, I've never really thought about it. I don't really know. And maybe that's the first step in them coming towards Christ is that that seed of doubt has been planted in their brain. But you see, you don't do it in an arrogant, harsh way. You just ask a question. You cite your true source, ask them theirs, 
They give their answer and then, you know, see where God takes it. Final action step is this. Being a bigot in a pluralistic world, I would encourage you to exemplify love. As a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you this. You should be the most generous, kind, encouraging, accepting person in your neighborhood and in your school and in your workplace. You should be known as a person who cares for and treats other people well. Our lives should exemplify love even as we hold to truth. And you know what? You might disagree with others, but they'll never question that you love them. They might think you're kooky. They might think you're wrong, but they'll never question that you're a friend and that you love them. And what I would say to someone is this at this point. If I disagree with somebody on this point, I'd say to them this. I'd say, listen, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now, let me ask you a question. How much would I have to hate you for me to really believe that and not t- tell you that. When you say something like, uh, I think as long as you're sincere, you're gonna be okay. I think all roads lead to heaven. If I honestly believe Jesus is the only way, how much would I have to hate you to keep my mouth shut at that point? If I loved you even a smidge, wouldn't I have to speak up at that point and say, oh man, I disagree. I think you're wrong. Now, what's my motive for speaking up there? Is it because I think that person's stupid? Is it because I hate that person? The exact opposite. The reason why I'm going to speak up is because I care about them. I care about their eternal destiny. I care that they come to know Christ. And so I'm going to be willing to stand up for truth at that point in a humble, loving way, but say, hey, we're going to have to agree to disagree. I don't buy what you just said. It's not unloving to disagree with someone. It's unloving to hold the truth and keep your mouth shut. That's unloving. I want to encourage you in your walk with Christ to embrace him, to never flinch when it comes to holding to the truth that Christ is the only way, And believing God can use you as an effective witness with the people that he's brought into your life to point them to the narrow gate. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Arlington Countryside Church, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org.